According to His promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the Scriptures. Join me once again this evening in the book of Philippians. We are in Philippians chapter 2, working our way through the Kenosis Hymn, almost through the Kenosis Hymn. Philippians chapter 2, Jesus Christ emptied Himself and Jesus Christ humbled Himself. And uh, we want to make sure we have a handle on both of those uh, events. Preparation for the study of the Word of God tonight. Let's take a moment for silent prayer, prayer so we can make sure we're in fellowship, confess anything that needs to be confessed, and humble our hearts for the authority of the Word of God. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, we do come before you tonight thankful for your grace and truth, rejoicing in the privilege we have to assemble together. And Father, calling upon your faithfulness to uh, manifest your glory. We thank you for the teaching ministry of the Holy Spirit, and uh, we look forward to observing the, uh, the power of your Holy Spirit at work tonight as he teaches us from the truth of your word. We thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All righty. We do want to take some time for Q&A tonight. We've uh, not done one of these for a couple of weeks. So uh, there's a microphone back there in the, there it is, in the uh, cover. And uh, if Lewis or anyone else wants to run the microphone for us. And uh, we'll give Lewis the privilege of asking the first question since he's the uh, microphone bearer. And so there we have it. All right. So any questions tonight that uh, are on your mind? Things that... Uh, have come up in the last three weeks. There were some emails that came up, and I answered many of them. I didn't answer all of them, and I'm not sure I loaded them, actually. So let me double-check and see if I loaded those questions or not. I know Bill had a question. Deb had a question. Um, it's a judgment seat of Christ question. Actually, it's a great white throne question from Revelation chapter 20. When unbelievers are judged based on their deeds. And this is true for unbelievers in Revelation chapter 20. It's also true for us in uh, the great way in the judgment seat of Christ. Deeds are not sins. Okay, keep that in mind. Deeds are not sins. And so when it says, I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Okay, that's a, think of that as an encyclopedia set, right? Books plural. And uh, then another book was opened, and that's separate. It's a separate volume with us on a, from a separate shelf with a separate goal, right? And um, the dead were judged from the things which are written in the books, not the book singular, the books plural, according to their deeds. Keep in mind, deeds is not the word for sins; it's not their sins. Judgment is not on the basis of their sins, because sins were condemned by God the Father on the cross. And uh, we want to understand that for what it is. The standard, of course, for whether they go to heaven or go to hell is uh, the fact of the, uh, the Lamb's book of life. It has nothing to do with our deeds. Uh, if we are born again, then our name is recorded in the Lamb's book of life. And that's the, that's the only criteria there. And that's, what, that's the information that's found in the single book. That single book that came off a different shelf, that's, uh, that's the Lamb's book of life. And if uh, your name is in the Lamb's book of life, then uh, you're not cast into the lake of fire for all eternity. You are a believer. You have God's righteousness. And uh, 
we understand that for what it is as well. So that had been the uh, the question there related to works, and uh, that's different from sin. And then another question as it related to prior to the church age, uh, believers did not receive, or saints, did not receive the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Why? And I love those why questions, because why questions don't always have the same answer, but um, and they don't always have an explicit biblical answer. But here's the here's the thing: I believe they weren't given the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament because uh, the Holy Spirit was a promise for them in the millennial kingdom, and so to give them the whole, the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament kind of, you know, well, what's the point of that if it's going to be a millennial promise as per Joel chapter two? So um, they do have a promise of the Holy Spirit in the millennial kingdom, and uh, they will get that at the second advent of Jesus Christ. Um, but they did not have it in the Old Testament for, for a number of different reasons. First of all, I think it's the, the function under law to put humanity under all these commands that they can't measure up to, to put them under commands that they can't fulfill, and then to give them no Holy Spirit empowerment to fulfill them anyway, <laughs> right? Whereas we in the body of Christ are not under law, we're in the freedom of grace, and we are in union with Christ himself. And so it's very appropriate for you and I to have the Holy Spirit today in ways that no Old Testament believer could. So that's kind of, those are a couple of different why answers, or because answers to the why questions. And and there would be more as well, I would expect, uh, just um, the more we pursue Old Testament uh, pneumatology. Occasionally a judge will get the Holy Spirit like Samson and then he'd be super strong. Or uh, a prophet would receive the Holy Spirit and they would they would have an utterance that they would give forth. Uh, but it was very sporadic. And then once it was done, the Holy Spirit would leave. Yeah, not like us today where our uh, the Holy Spirit we receive today is permanent uh, for the entirety of our Christian walk. So those are questions that came in by email. Uh, do that answer what you were asking and Sufficient? Okay. So we're ready for some fresh questions tonight. Anything new? Anything uh, ready to go? All right, behind you there, back row. Um, You might have already answered this, I'm not sure, but in the fullness of times, Mm -hmm. is there volition? And if so, how does it manifest itself? Excellent question. Yes, there's no more sin. No more death. No, uh, the first things have passed away, but there remains volition. I'm convinced there remains volition. And, and I think the analogy for that is with the elect angels. And so as we model it, uh, we can model it as volition, human volition, but it's permanently oriented to the positive direction. It's never negative volition, but it remains free will. It remains volition. And so kind of the, uh, the, the, the corollary to that would be elect angels today, that, that Gabriel and Michael, the elect angels today, still have their volition, their free will, but uh, it's permanently locked towards the positive polarity. They can never turn it to the negative polarity. And so uh, Michael and Gabriel cannot become fallen angels today, uh, just like Satan can't get saved today. And that the, the angels are locked into their, they're already in their angelity future. So uh, I think that's the, that model helps us to understand what humanity will be like on the new heavens and on the new earth. They still retain volition, but it's permanently oriented towards the positive polarity. Just kind of like what we will be in our resurrection bodies. Yeah, very much so. That's so right. We still have volition. The only qu- caveat to that, and maybe there is no answer till we see it, is they never had to make the ultimate decision for or against God, however. I, I'm sorry. The angels had to make a decision. Sorry. 
yeah. um, to choose for or against right. God, we have to make that same to choose right. for Christ. Are you saying that the fullness of time generations do not have to make that decision? And is that fair? We don't know. That's, that's an open question at this point. I don't think that's been revealed yet. I, I, I don't see it anywhere in the Old Testament or the New Testament. And perhaps that's a feature of the doctrine they're going to get with the animal sacrifices and the shadow doctrine they're going to be taught. Um, we don't know what the... Uh, the word spoken through angels proved unalterable. They gave their word, they chose their side, and that's where they landed as an elect angel or as a fallen angel. If there will be something comparable to that to humanity in the fullness of time, it's not, it's not laid clear. I think we, we can ask the same question with respect to Adam and Eve. Uh, they were sinless, they were perfect, they were in the garden. What length of time had to go by for them to not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? You know, had they been there a hundred years, would the Father have then said, okay, now you may choose to eat from the tree of life, or you may choose to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you know, choose you this day, which, you know, right. which, and then that would be comparable to what I think the angels were faced with. So that's a long way to say, I don't know. <laughs> but I do believe uh, positive volition will be permanently positive, as, w- as will be ours in the resurrection, as will be theirs. They won't be resurrected, but they will be, they'll have their synectomy complete by then, right? Sin will be cut out, and their mor- mortal bodies will be restored to the sinless Adamic perfection. Yeah. All right, front row then. We go from the back row to the front row, and we get uh, Robert up front here. We like to keep our microphone runners running one of them. <laughs> I've been kind of fixating on the transition period uh, when we had Old Testament believers and church believers, New, believe, New Testament believers, mm-hmm. running around in the same place. And so when Paul was told about Jesus by Ana- Ananias, mm-hmm. that's when he got the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. If he had refused to believe, had not believed, then he would have gone on to his death and been an Old Testament believer and had to wait for that resurrection, right? Correct. Absolutely correct. Uh-huh. Okay. That I've been kind of getting myself... No, that's angry. excellent, because a lot of people don't think that, th- that far through it, and that's very excellent. And, and, and it, it only could happen there. It could only happen for believers that got saved... Before the cross, and they were Old Testament believers. And in, if Paul was saved in his childhood, like he tells Timothy, I think it's clear. If if Paul was saved in his childhood, then he was saved prior to Calvary. He was an Old Testament right. believer saved before the church age. And there were many that were in that category. Problem being, then, what happens if you're an Old Testament believer before Christ arrives, and then you? because you're a Pharisee and you're prideful and you're arrogant uh, and you're told that that Galilean carpenter is just a, a, a false Christ. So what happens to Old Testament believers that reject Jesus? Say, well, they can't lose their salvation. You cannot lose your salvation. No one can lose their salvation. They have eternal life. They received eternal life as Old Testament saints. And so what you described is, is the case very well. And, and I think that was the nature I know what would have happened had Nicodemus, you know, rejected Jesus there in John chapter 3. Um, there's just different aspects there. So I think no one loses their salvation, but then they die, and their eternal estate is centered in the nation of Israel, 
And they could have been bride of Christ. They could have been royal family of God. They could have been us in the, in the church. So that's the, the verse in Ephesians where they, the one new man in Christ comes from the Jews or the Gentiles. That's one new man in Christ, that's right. Yeah, believing Jews and believing Gentiles are now one new man in Christ. Excellent. All right, we're going to go to the far corner over here. We got Eliezer and we got Al. Appreciate those. My question is more of a clarification okay. uh, from Hebrews one fourteen. Yes. Um, it says, are they not all ministering spirits sent out to service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? What phase of salvation is this? Are we talking of ultimate salvation here? Is this phase three? Would this be? I believe it's ultimate salvation. I yeah. See. Yeah. That's how I take it anyway. Sure. You could think of it as phase one, you know, for those that will be saved, but then they also will proceed to phase three. And because the word inherit is there, I think that stresses the phase three. Um, and, And beyond that, I think we're not really aware of the angels that are serving us today like we will be after phase three. So that's how I take it. And then also in uh, second Peter three 15, um, regard the patience of our Lord to be salvation. Yeah, I would take that as phase one. I would take that as the patience that he shows to those unbelievers that are still coming to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Oh, okay. All right. Very good. Thank you. All right. You're welcome. And then Al. Al, you're our cleanup hitter tonight. Okay. Uh, we understand that uh, after uh, Christ was crucified, he went down to Sheol and led captivity captive. Now, we understand that those are the Old Testament believers at that time mm-hmm. who were, were waiting for this moment, and uh, uh, he brought them to heaven in, in what state, I'm not sure. However, it brings up a question now. Those Old Testament believers that were still alive that did reject Christ, and then they died, uh-huh. did they are they back in Sheol waiting for again, but... No, the Where whole realm, the whole realm was transported. Paradise, paradise uh, used to be in Sheol. Paradise is that compartment, uh, Abraham's bosom across the gulf from torments. Paradise, Jesus told the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. Uh, but now, ever since Christ led captivity captive, he not only took those souls with him, he took the whole realm. That whole realm of paradise is now in the third heaven. Because when the apostle Paul was caught up, it says that he was caught up into mm. paradise, into the third heaven. So the entire, you know, sometimes we go to the post office, we fill out a change of residence. <laughs> you know, he took the whole residence, the whole, the whole paradise got, got relocated up to the third heaven. And it's no longer across the gulf from, from torments. And, so and just, just to clarify then, those, those Old Testament believers that did not place their faith in Christ, uh-huh. they went to paradise anyway. Yes, they did. Okay, wonderful. Yeah. Is it quick? All right. Doug says it's quick. We'll give Doug the uh, we'll give Doug the cleanup hitter roll. Hey, bonus question. The question's quick. The answer's going to take forty five minutes. <laughs> Exodus twenty verses four. Verse four is a good place. But um, you shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above, or on the earth beneath, or in the water under the earth. That's yeah, curious, isn't it? 
And I think that's related to the sea, and the sea gave up the dead that are in them, and uh, Hades gave up the dead that are within them, and and uh, yeah, in heavens, on the earth, under the earth. It is awkward having the term water under the earth, um, but it is. Uh, it may not be. I'll get a better answer for you okay. in, uh, in two weeks on that. How about okay. that? Because I, I did some work on that a while back, and I, I want to find it. Okay. All right. All right, so that's our Q&A time. Remember, next week is a guest speaker, and I'm not going to expect him to do Q&A. So uh, we will do our next Q&A in two weeks. Philippians, have this attitude. Have this attitude. And it's the attitude Christ had, this thinking have this thinking in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. And that's what we're called to do. If our thinking is prideful, that's not Jesus' thinking, so get rid of it. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. He will exalt you at the proper time. So have this attitude in yourselves, who, which was also in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. And so the attitude of Christ is summarized in two verbs. Verb number one is emptied, kanao, emptied himself. That's verse seven. Verb two is humbled himself, verse eight. And I believe those are separate events. I believe, and I think it's clear, I don't know anyone that really tries to equate them because in the emptying of himself, it talks about the human, the, the, the body that he assumed, the, 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 the form, the likeness, the, uh, the image that he took, the appearance that he took when the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And so in, in Kanao, in the emptying of himself, the Kenosis doctrine speaks of the incarnation. It speaks of the, uh, the humiliation of just walking this earth in these fallen, in these bodies. His wasn't fallen, but he had a human body like, like our body. And then the humbling. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. And so he not only entered into space and time, but, and he did so bodily, he did so in an incarnation, and then in, the, in that incarnation, he died. He died, right? And so if you think about it, this is, there's just so much that's being fulfilled in this. And you read, you go through those begat passages, the Toledoth of Adam, the Toledoth of Noah, the Toledoth, all of those generation passages, you're reading through Genesis and, uh, and, and I know it's tempting to skip chapter 5, it's tempting to skip the genealogy chapters because there's not much happening there, there's a lot of beginning that happens there and there's names. But every time, he died, he died, he died, he died, right? So you have a patriarch, he lived a certain number of years, he fathered a son in his image, and then he lived a certain number of years after that, and then and the total number of his days was such and such, and then he died. Okay, And that's the pattern. He died, he died, he died, he died. And so what does Jesus do? He comes to this earth and he died. Okay, And that's, uh, that's significant. That's absolutely significant. So from birth to death and everything in between, he walked our walk. He identified with us. And that's, that's key. Okay, And so we'll talk about some of the other things. Why was the death necessary? Um, other aspects. If you ever think about that? Because he said, it is finished. Tetelestai, it is finished. He accomplished our redemption. His spiritual death accomplished everything the Father designed it for. Sin was atoned for. The, the propitiation was, was in place. The Father was, was pleased. And, and then he took his life back up again. Right? He laid down his life 
and he took it up again. So he was spiritually alive when he announced that marvelous tetelestai. It is finished. And then he said, Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit, and he breathed his last. He submitted to physical death. And that's, that's wonderful also, if you, if you stop and think it through. And, and, and this blew my mind years ago, and, and I think I was still in seminary, and I was asking Ralph this. You know, I mean, I'm thinking, if it was me, and I finished my tetelestai, you know, shout, well, then I'm coming off that cross, and I'm going to start wiping out unbelievers, and I'm going to bring in a kingdom, and I'm going to, you know what I'm saying? That's just me. But no. He says it is finished, the, the redemption was done, and, but now he's got more work to do, the work of physical death. And he's going to have to go to Sheol, and he's going to descend to the lower parts of the earth, and he's going to preach to the, to the spirits there in, in prison. And there's three days he has to be in the grave because Jonah was in the whale for three days. And, and, and so there's more work to be done when he said it is finished, including his own physical death and his own physical bodily resurrection. So uh, I think all of these are details we want to be clear on and understand them for what they are and then put the whole thing together in, uh, in an overall study. And that's what Philippians is doing. So Philippians talks about his kenosis in the incarnation and then it talks about his humbling in, uh, in death. So uh, at this point then, we are dealing with uh, his humbling under point E if I am correct, and I am. All right. This is all, these are the subpoints under main point six. Main point six is the Kenosis hymn, and, and this is the final main point for this development, and it's going to take us all the way down through verse 11, and uh, that's going to wrap up this, this paragraph, and we'll be ready for the paragraph after that. But, but this point six, though, has a lot of subpoints as we break down the Kenosis hymn. And so we've already talked about A, B, C, and D, D was the point that we looked at as we related to the emptying of himself. And we pointed out it is an aorist verb. It's a finite verb. It's aorist. It's a point of time. He emptied himself. Then uh, another aorist follows in point E. He humbled himself, right? So it's an aorist verb for kanao, and it's an aorist verb for tapenao. He emptied himself. He humbled himself. And uh, this is what we're looking at now under subpoint E. And uh, this too has participles that define the activity, that, that give detail as to exactly how he humbled himself or the circumstances of his humbling himself. And so under this, there's really three subpoints. Uh, it is self-humbling. It's something you must do, okay? Um don't feel like this is something that others will do for you or that this is something that God will do for you. There's plenty of that in the Christian walk too. Don't get me wrong. There are plenty of places in our Christian walk whereby other people humble us, okay? That happens. And there are occasions in our Christian walk where God will humble us. Oftentimes His discipline is very humbling. A lot of times the undeserved suffering He assigns to us is very humbling. God is able to humble and God does humble and so, uh, but don't confuse those activities, right? Humbling is the verb, and there are many subjects that are, that are ready to start humbling you, including God, including the world, including Satan. They would love to humble you. But don't forget the fact that we are under a mandate to humble ourselves. 
The scripture says, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. So, you know, there's a long line of people that are waiting to humble you. Uh, Put yourself at the front of that line. Humble yourself. Be the subject of the verb. It's an active voice verb. That means the subject does it. And if, if you're the one that's commanded to do it, then do it. And, uh, and, and don't think that it's a substitute that, well, I don't have to do that because, you know, God's going to humble me anyway. Uh, wrong attitude. God, yeah, He's going to humble you anyway and probably twice as hard because He told you to do it. And uh, you're in defiance of the, of the command. So anyway, self-humbling. It is an active verb. It does have a reflexive, reflexive pronoun. The object is yourself. Okay? God doesn't call us to humble other people. God doesn't call us to bring them down so we can feel better about ourselves, right? We don't have anywhere a command to, you know, go humble your brother. No, it says go love your brother, okay? The only uh, human being you're called upon to humble is, is you, and that's, uh, that's what we get to here. So it is a reflexive pronoun. The pronoun is reflexive. The pronoun is yourself. So you're the, you're the one doing it, and you're doing it to yourself. Humble yourself. So that's what we deal with there. And we did that subpoint already. Um, but we have a participle that defines this for us, so that helps to show us the conditions in which, you know, what are the, what are the uh, venues in which I want to humble myself? Well, uh, obedience is the prime venue, and that's the one that's illustrated here, by becoming obedient. And so here's now, here we have, and if you want the grammar on this, it's an aorist participle. It's an aorist participle of genomai. And so how does the aorist participle relate to the aorist verb related to humbling himself? Okay, well, aorist participles precede the activity of the main verb. And so this is how he humbled himself. This is the occasion for his humbling of himself. That every time you and I have obedience uh, testing, every time we have a temptation to not obey, uh, which is our occasion to obey, uh, those are the circumstances that allow us to humble ourselves. And so uh, that's what it comes down to. And, and might as well make it an active part of your thinking and say, all right, Father, you know, the next time that sin temptation crops up that says that, you know, the little sin nature uh, rears its head and says, you don't want to do that. Okay, just stop and say, no, you're right. I don't want to do that, but I'm going to do that because God tells me to do that. I'm going to be obedient to the plan of God. And so you reject the disobedience temptation and you, uh, you obey God. And in that test, in that occasion, what are you doing? You're humbling yourself. You say, thank you, Father. Thank you, Father. I'm going to humble myself and obey. I'm going to do what you want me to do. I don't want to do it, but I'm going to do it. And this is, uh, this is a humble activity. So uh, obedience is, uh, is a humbling endeavor. Specifically, prolonged obedience. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, it's easy to obey for, you know, five minutes or so. Uh, But, you know, what if the test lasts an hour? What if the test lasts a day, a week, a month? What if it's a 12-year test? Okay. Sarah waited 90 years to have a baby. You know, how long does this test last? And the thing is, you know, does obedience get harder the longer it... Yeah, of course it does. Of course it does, because we're temporal creatures. And yet God is eternal, and our Christian walk, our spiritual walk is an, is an eternal walk. And so what if this test lasts longer than, uh, than um, 
You know, it probably gets exposed very quickly if we were attempting obedience on a, uh, on a human basis. <laughs> if we thought, oh, I can obey that with the flesh, with human effort, how long do you think you can keep that up? Okay? And uh, if, if your obedience is, is fleshly, then it's carnal to begin with. So don't obey based upon human ability. Obey with the filling of the Holy Spirit. Obey uh, in, the, in your spiritual walk. Anyway, prolonged obedience that never draws a line or crosses lines that others might draw. See, if you, if you put a limit to things, saying, okay, Lord, I'll obey, but, right, I'm willing to be a pastor, but I'm not going to do this. See, uh, you know, I'll serve you, Lord, but don't expect me to ever go to the mission field, whatever the case may be. When you start drawing lines, you start drawing lines like that, uh, you know, he who sits in the heavens laughs. Because it's remarkable, those things we don't want to do, and he's got a marvelous uh, skill to, uh, to, to put us exactly where we told him we didn't want to go. <laughs> okay? Because that's, that's what gets our attention. That's what wakes us up. And that's what uh, time and time and time again, we see it in the Bible, we see it in the Old Testament, we see it in the New Testament. I find it interesting. And so uh, there you have it. Self-humbling, prolonged obedience. Don't draw a line. Don't draw a line. Scripture says, be faithful unto death, I will give you the crown of life. And that's the reward, to be faithful until death. A believer that never drew the line and said, that's it, I'm not, I'm not going to obey after this. Obedience learned through suffering is the perfection process for humanity. You know, there's things we learn in Bible class and there's things we learn in suffering. Because it's in suffering that the things we learn in Bible class come alive. And the power of God is manifest more than ever before. And so we end up uh, observing the power of God in ways we never can observe, especially if we don't submit to the testing, if we run from our problems, if we don't submit to the, uh, to the suffering perfection process. That becomes important also. And then say, you say, okay, well, I'm going to be faithful in the death. I'm going to be faithful in the death. I'm, I'm ready to die. I'm ready to be a martyr. Okay? Just as long as it's, you know, a peaceful death in my sleep, that'd be nice. Uh, I don't want it to hurt. Okay? <laughs> you know? Um, yeah, I'm not afraid to die. I'm happy to go to heaven after I die. Just how painful is that, is that process going to be that, that gets me there? Uh, maybe... Uh, I'm not drawing a line, but it's kind of a series of dashes at this point that could quickly become a line, okay? Now, there's something worse than death. And there's modes of death, okay? And, if, if, and God only asked me to be faithful until physical death. And God never asked me or never commanded me to lay down my spiritual life, but that's what he asked Jesus Christ to do. And that's the final expression here when it says even death on a cross. We've got to wrap our minds around the fact that it's not just the physical death execution by virtue of Roman crucifixion. Okay, Thousands of people have been crucified. They're still being crucified today in Muslim countries. They're crucifying Christians today. Uh, you know, depending on, I forget the number, 70,000 or whatever it was, there was a huge number of crucifixions that happened after, after Titus conquered Jerusalem. 
Unbelievable number. Julius Caesar crucified, you know, a hundred pirates on one occasion. Okay, I mean, lots of people get crucified, but only one sinless man surrendered his spiritual life that you and I could be born again. And that's what he was willing to do. And that's what he did do in uh, the Tetelestai victory of accomplishing our salvation. So we want to understand this is the final subpoint under E, and this is subpoint three even death on a cross. Even death on, shall we call it, an altar of shame. Because he is a priest, he is also the sacrifice, and the cross he died on was his altar. Okay? Or the altar of his soul. Some pastors prefer to call it that. But the cross is an emblem of shame. He was not strapped to a stone altar. He was not laying, laid down on, a, on an altar. Isaac was laid on an altar, but Jesus was hung on a cross. And why a cross? What's the significance of the tree? The language of the tree and hanging on a tree is the language of a curse. And so there's some aspects here we want to be clear on. So even death on a cross. And uh, Deuteronomy addresses this. Galatians addresses this. Uh, Jesus accepted this. He accepted this work assignment and he did so volitionally before the foundation of the world. God the Son agreed to the Father's plan before the foundation of the world. Uh, Revelation 13.8 calls him the Lamb of God slain from the foundation of the world. And he agreed to it as a part of the eternal life conference. And that's all a part of what the Father decreed there in the divine decree. But in any event, let's look at these. Deuteronomy 21 and Galatians, Hebrews, and Isaiah. I'm going to make sure we're, we're solid on this. And then we can see his exaltation tonight. But Deuteronomy 21. And just so we're clear, there is a curse by hanging on a tree. Why is that? Another why question. Um, because. <laughs> it is. All right, but there is a significance to the trees, okay? And the significance to the trees that spans all of human history, think about the, the trees that Adam was presented with, but then there's trees as well, I, I believe, in the in original angelic earth. There's trees that are centered in... in uh, uh, kingdom doctrine. Anyway, Deuteronomy 21. If a man has committed a sin worthy of death, he is to be put to death. And normally that was by stoning, right? That was the normal execution method was stoning. Occasionally there would be a, a sword employed for a beheading or occasionally there would be, um, for witchcraft, uh, there was burning. Okay? But the, the normal mode of, uh, of execution was stoning. But then, he is to be put to death and you hang him on a tree. What's that about? It's the visual display that says, look at this, dead guy, right? Why was he put to death and what is the display for? Hang him on a tree. His corpse shall not hang all night on the tree but you shall surely bury him on the same day. Remember, in the Hebrew calendar, every day started with sundown. Every day, you know, when the sun goes down, that's a new day. There's evening and morning, a new day. And so uh, whatever day that is that, that you execute him, 
uh, and you, you put them up there for display, get them down before the sun goes down. All right, that's their requirement. Uh, for he who is hanged is accursed of God, so that you do not defile your land, which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance. Uh, the Bible, the Old Testament talks a lot about pollution, land pollution, okay? And it's not, uh, it's not, has nothing to do with driving your SUV, <laughs> okay? It has nothing to do with carbon credits or anything like that. The pollution was sin pollution. The pollution was defilement. And in particular, the things that would defile a land was innocent blood, fornication, and demonism. Those things would defile a land, okay? And it would have physical effects. It would, it would have long-standing consequences on geography. A place could be haunted. A place could be cursed by virtue of the land being defiled. To the, it reaches the point of the land itself would then vomit. And uh, God would give the land to new stewards. In any event, uh, I believe the curse and the tree centers on many of the demonic rituals that were done around trees and they were done at night and they were done under darkness and they were done in uh, some horrendous things that and they they uh they blended everything because they shed innocent blood they uh they massacred their babies they fornicated it was a big festival there and uh and it was all demonic so they they got the they got the hat trick with their defilement of the land all three okay Anyway, but all of this then comes into the Bible to be very instructive that uh, the Israelites were not to imitate the Gentiles around them, but the principle was going to be applied that God himself was going to hang his own son on a tree and God himself was going to shroud him in darkness and God himself was going to shed innocent blood, the, the most innocent blood ever shed, the blood of our Savior, okay? And so all those things are going into the prophecy of the coming Christ. And that's what we see here. All right. And so he's a curse. And he's going to become a curse. And he's going to become a curse for a couple of different applications. And and then doctrinally, Paul spells this out in Galatians 3, because there's the curse of sin, but there's also the curse of the law. You ever try to solve something and... And the, the mechanism you use to solve something is not really even a solution. It just seems to make matters worse. Okay? That's what the law is. Was the law a remedy for sin? <laughs> the law just magnified sin. The law just spotlighted sin. Paul said that, that thou shalt not covet law was a terrible thing for him. <laughs> and it made sin even more sinful. Anyway, so Galatians 3, verses 13 and 14, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, where you just read in Deuteronomy, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, in order that in Christ Jesus the blessings of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. So he solved the curse of sin, he solved the curse of the law, he puts uh, Jews and Gentiles on an equal footing, because the Gentiles, they never had the law. It was only the Jews that had the law. Anyway, Jesus accepted a substitutionary sacrificial death, accepting the curse of sin, accepting the curse of the law, and accepting the infinite wrath of God. He accepted the infinite wrath of God. All for the joy that was set before him. Hebrews 12, 2. 
Hebrews 12, 2. You've got a whole chapter in chapter 11 dedicated to Old Testament heroes of faith, and all of them combined, you know, just kind of paved the way for the pinnacle, and the pinnacle is Jesus. And that's why we have chapter 12. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Fixing our eyes on Jesus. If your eyes aren't on the Lord, forget about it. Okay? You know, it's like Peter got out of the boat. When his eyes were on the Lord, things were fine. When uh, the wind started picking up and the waves started picking up and he took his eyes off Jesus, what happened? He started looking at the waves, he started looking at the wind, and what happened? Started to sink. Okay? So keep your eyes on Jesus. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him, where were his eyes fixed? Okay? That's the example. He had his eyes fixed the way we're supposed to have our eyes fixed. Only difference is we have our eyes fixed on him. He had his eyes fixed on what? There was a joy that the Father had promised. And that's what he had set before him. The joy set before him. And so what did he do? He endured the cross. He despised the shame. Now, that shame, by the way, is what the point I'm getting at here in this uh, death on a cross. When it said he was humble, unto the, he was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, that's despising the shame. Despising the shame. He becomes the curse on our behalf. Despising the shame and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Because of that, he has the victory. Because of that, he has the victory. We're going to deal with some of those principles uh, next in uh, point F when we get to the exaltation. It's because he humbled himself that the Father exalted him. It's causative. Finally, let's look at uh, Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53. As we approach the Jewish Passover season, Isaiah 53, of course, is uh, one of the best passages you can turn to this time of year. Because this is the uh, suffering servant. This is Messiah. And it's curious, the Father put it in this order. He wrote chapter 52, and in chapter 52, we've got evangelism, we got good news, we're shouting on the mountains and we're happy because we're giving good news, and um, there's a Savior that's coming and He's exalted. When you look at the end of chapter 52, He's exalted. My servant will prosper. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. And so, you know, there's a ton of praise choruses that want to, you know, high and lift it up and different things. And yet, what does it take to get there? Verse 14, just as, I'm now, so I backed up to 52, 14. Just as many were astonished at you, my people, so his appearance was marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of man. The abuse he went through. And that was before he even did the work. Thus he will sprinkle many nations. Kings will shut their mouths on account of him. For what had not been told them they will see. And what they had not heard they will understand. 
There's not a Gentile king that had the scriptures that the Jewish people have that spell out exactly what the Messiah was going to do. And so who has believed our message? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? To the Jewish people in the Hebrew scriptures. And uh, everything here that describes his birth and his humility, he grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. That acquainted with is, is intimate, intimate with grief. You know, think of the marital intimacy between a man and a woman, and he was intimate with grief. Okay, that's pretty intense. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried, yet we ourselves esteem him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him and by his scourging we are healed. The only person that didn't deserve to be there so he's the only person qualified to take our place. And all of our sins were laid upon him. He accepted all of them. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned aside to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. This is the judicial imputation that, that takes place. Every, every molecule of our unrighteousness got imputed to him. He was uh, oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, that generation that crucified him and said, his blood be upon our head and upon our children, that generation that said that demanded, give us Barabbas and crucify this Jesus, Yes, this generation. Hmm. For the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due, they're the ones that should have been under the wrath of God. But he, he, he took their sins too and said, Father, forgive them, they know not what they do. His grave was assigned with, a wicked, with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. Now, when we get to verse 10, so all of that leads us up now. All of that, we get that. Substitutionary atonement and penal substitution and all these things, we get that. But it goes deeper than that. And it starts to address the agreement between the Father and the Son. It starts to address the basis by which the Father was satisfied. And I want us to be clear before we leave tonight what this is all about. Because it may be you've studied the doctrine of propitiation and you understand that Propitiation is the $5 theological word. Satisfied is the, you know, the everyday 50 cent word. Okay? We get that. The doctrine of propitiation, the Father was satisfied. Why was he satisfied? On what basis was he satisfied? Was he satisfied because he's a sadistic, bloodthirsty, uh, masochistic, uh, you know, God of vengeance and wrath, and he, he got his thrill and his jollies for torturing Jesus for three hours? Is that what satisfied him? 
Well, we actually have the definition of satisfaction right here. What is the Father's good pleasure? The Father, the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief, if he, in his own volitional capacity, God the Son, would render himself as a guilt offering. So the pleasure of God the Father and the satisfaction of the God the Father comes only by virtue of God the Son's willing, volitional sacrifice. If he doesn't do so, if he does it grudgingly or under compulsion, there's no good pleasure. It must be not grudgingly or under compulsion, but of his own free will. We learn that. That's the nature of what satisfies the Father, what pleases the Father. It's like our own grace giving. Not grudgingly or under compulsion, we're told, right? But as you have purposed in your heart, for God loves the cheerful giver, that's the application for us in our Christian giving. It's no different. The motivation between the Father and the Son. It was the will of the Father, but the Son had to do it in His own volition, in His own good pleasure. So if He would render Himself a guilt offering, He will see His offspring. He will prolong His days. And the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in His hand. And for Him to be willing to do this, He has to understand the whole price. He has to understand what it's going to cost Him. And so we see in verse 11, as a result of the anguish of his soul. That's a consequence. That's a because right there. That's a consequence. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he, God the Father, will see it and be satisfied. So the passion of the Christ, it's not the physical abuse he suffered. It's not the scourging, the whipping, the crown of thorns. It's not the beating. It's nothing physical. It's the anguish of his soul. And in the, as a result, in the consequence to the anguish of Jesus' soul, God the Father will see it and be satisfied. Propitiation speaks to satisfaction. That the the, uh, the, the, the Christ is willing, able, and qualified to be the substitute by his knowledge. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many. What knowledge? The knowledge he learned through suffering. The knowledge he gained in the anguish of his soul in suffering. This isn't the omniscient knowledge of God the Son. This is the experiential knowledge that the God-man received through the suffering that he was assigned. Ultimately, this happened in Gethsemane the night before. Okay, When he said, my soul is troubled to the point of death. Pray with me. Pray with me. And because he had the victory in Gethsemane, the Father was satisfied that Jesus had the appropriate knowledge to be the righteous one, to be the justifier. Without this knowledge, he couldn't be the justifier. My servant will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great. When we get back to Philippians, we're going to see he gets the name that's above every other name, every name that is named, both in this age and in the age to come. I will allot him a portion with the great. He will divide the booty with the strong because, again, it's causative, because 
he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. So this is the obedience. This is the humbling. This is the pinnacle. And it's, it, it just beggars the imagination. It, it, it's hard to fathom. It's hard to wrap your mind around. In fact, I recommend you listen to this MP3 about six times. <laughs> All right? Get your mind around it. That, uh, so we think about, well, all he had to do was just not be a sinner. Oh, so much more than that. Okay? Yes, a single sin would have disqualified him. So I grant you, to be the, the, the perfect sacrifice, he had to be sinless. But to be the justifier, do you see the difference? Because he, yes, he's the sacrifice, but he's also the priest that's ministering the sacrifice. He's also the justifier. And to be the justifier, there was more required than just being sinless and perfect. It's by his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many. Until he gains that knowledge, he cannot be the justifier. So chew on that. Consider that. Because that's the same point Paul's making in Philippians 2. When he humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. And for this reason also, God highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name. And so we'll deal with that too. All right. So we have the doctrine of satisfaction and we have the, the uh, plan that's executed here between the Father and the Son and the consequence to the anguish of his soul. You see that in verse 11? It's a consequence as a result of the anguish of his soul. Okay? And this is, this is why the Father puts things on display. The Father sees it. The angels see it. These things are all on display. Remember when Abraham was ready to plunge the knife in? And the father says, now I know, right? It's a display. And Abraham displayed it before the father. Abraham displayed it before the angels, elect and fallen alike. And Abraham displayed it in front of Isaac. You know, Isaac had the the most upfront view of all of that. (laughs) Okay? And it's all on display. And so the son has to exhibit that display he has to pray the prayers of gethsemane he has to say not my will but thine be done he has to go through the anguish and then learn what he learns through that anguish the the knowledge it says here by his knowledge so he acquires that knowledge through the anguish and he says thy will be done and the father says now now as a result of that now the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many. See, he's not prepared for the cross until he's given that knowledge, until his soul goes through that anguish. All right, so that's what we deal with there. The the last thing that happens then, the son did two things, so the father's doing two things. Let's get back to Philippians. The son did two things. What were the two things the son did? Emptied himself, humbled himself, right? Two things the father did. 
I lost my place. All right. God exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. All right. So um, now that we've seen the two things that, that the son has done, emptied himself, humbled himself, now we've got two things the father's going to do. Exalted and bestowed. So for this reason also, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. So now for the rest of this kenosis hymn, uh, we have the exaltation. So we've had two principles of, of humiliation. Now we get two principles of exaltation, including exaltation and bestowing upon him the name which is above every name. Notice, though, it's for this reason. For this reason. It's causative. Those, those becauses we saw in Isaiah, they're back. It's causative. If he doesn't have the victory on the cross, he doesn't get this exaltation for the fullness of time and for eternity future. So, uh, let me just tease it here tonight and we'll, uh, we'll spend Sunday dealing with this. God the Father exalted Jesus Christ and grace bestowed on him the name which is above every name. And uh, two activities here, okay? Two activities. And he is, he's seated at the right hand. He is exalted. And that exaltation is not necessarily visible from earth. <laughs> we can see it with our spiritual view and in the fact that we're seated at his right hand also. Um, but the uh, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, we're not there yet. Okay, he's not yet exalted on earth, but he is exalted in heaven. And so we'll deal with some of those principles too. God the Father exalted Jesus Christ and grace bestowed on him the name which is above every name. And uh, we'll see this as a grace provision. All right, so think about this. Between now and Sunday, think about this. And, and, and if in your mind, in my mind, in our mind, if, if these terms are contradictory, we need, to, we need to end the contradiction. Because we've proven tonight that, that his victory on the cross is causative for his exaltation, right? Do we not agree on that? His, the victory on the cross is now causative of his exaltation. For this reason, because it's all it's causative. But just because it's causative, don't abandon grace. Simply because it's causative, don't abandon grace. When the Father exalts him, when the Father bestows on him, it is a grace bestowal from the Father. Okay, And it might be hard to think about because what we have to flush from our vocabulary is the idea that Jesus earned it. That He deserved it. And if you... Okay, see? See, it's tempting. It's tempting to say that He deserved it because look what He did. So didn't He earn it? Didn't He deserve it? Okay? Let's, uh, let's try to separate from our thinking the idea... Yes, it's causative, but there are other causes besides merit, worth, earning, or deserving something, okay? If you work for something, it's not grace, it's wages. If, if Jesus was on the cross working for this on a wage basis before the Father, then he's not the pinnacle of grace, 
He's the pinnacle of legalism. But I'm here to tell you, He's the pinnacle of grace. And so the grace exaltation, the grace bestowment is a grace thing. It's not what He's earned. It's not what He's deserved. So chew on that between now and Sunday. I'll prove it to you Sunday morning. Because it's a grace application. By the way, same thing. When we receive our rewards at the judgment seat of Christ, do you think you earned those? you think you deserve those? You say, well, they were, they were gold, silver, and precious stones. They weren't wood, hands, double. Of course I deserve that. No, you didn't. If you did it in grace, you're going to be rewarded in grace. Jesus did what he did in grace. He went to the cross in grace. He's going to be eternally rewarded in grace. Grace is always greater than works and always greater than what you've earned and deserved. Anyway, come back Sunday. That's my teaser. Thank you, Father, for tonight. Thank you for your truth. And Father, um, help us to expand our thinking so that we recognize that rewards are rewards. They are grace things as everything else is that you bestow. And Father, uh, don't even allow us to even think in terms of what we've earned and deserved because we've earned and deserved the lake of fire. So thank you for all these wonderful blessings. Open our eyes to this truth. Thank you that Jesus humbled himself. Thank you that he emptied himself. Thank you, Father, for exalting him. Thank you for bestowing upon him the name above every name. And Father, we're going to humble ourselves so that we can be exalted. But when that exaltation comes, it's going to be a grace exaltation, Father. We will not have earned it or deserved that either. Thank you for being faithful, Father. I thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.